You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning again, family. Uh, Arise. I, I deeply, deeply, deeply love you and miss you. And um, as we have, by the time you see this, just had some time to have a little bit of family time, it's just a reminder of how near and dear we all are to one another and how much of a gift it is for us to be able to do life together, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with one another, and also to even weep with one another. Again, by the time you see this, we've had some time on the Zoom call, but maybe you haven't really recognized how early we've been recording these times. Today is Saturday, and it's May the 9th. Tomorrow is the 10th, and for you, it would have been last week that Sean preached, because Sean preached that on May the 2nd, if that makes sense. And so I stand before you on Saturday uh, with a heavy heart. And um, by God's grace, Jeff Lawhead texts me today in a moment where I was really wrestling with my own frailty and wrestling with my limited, um, just being a limited person. And he just said, how's P. Ross? And did we get them new fresh kicks in the mail yet? He just reached out to me as a friend. He reached out to me in love. And at that moment, I'm wrestling through a Facebook message that I just shared from a friend who said, every time a pastor takes his own life, I'm reminded of the fact that no man can stand up under the kind of pressure that comes in pastoral ministry. He goes on to confess that in his first year of church planting, he took a rope and put it around his own neck and was ready to kill himself and has wrestled with that many, many times. And the way in which that ministered to my heart is an eerie thing. The way in which I saw multiple, I mean, some of your favorite pastors and preachers, favorite pastors and preachers were struck by that and wanted to share it and felt like it was, it was hidden exactly on the way that they have felt many times. And it's because we're all in a tender spot. Yesterday, the news broke about a beloved brother who had passed. And as I announced to those of you who are on Facebook, that's one of Sean's closest friends. Over time, doing ministry together, experiencing the highs and the lows, and sticking with one another over years and years and years. On Thursday night, Sean had texted me, and I know he texted some of his family members, and texted the rest of the elders and just told us what had happened on Thursday night and asked us not to share about it. But it was after the news broke and it went public that I let you guys know. And so again... Here we are. This has been a crazy week. 
We've had national news yet again of uh, uh, the killing, the murder of an innocent and unarmed man. And it's not just the fact that he was killed, it's that it happened on February 23rd and nothing had happened until everybody was able to see it by video, get up in arms about it. And so then our justice system kicks in. It just seems like there's a lot of unrest in our world. We've had in our county announcements this week that unsettled some about the way in which Ventura County is going to tighten up, thinking about the shelter at home and also how to isolate and or quarantine folks who might be showing symptoms and what that means for families. And we've, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so here I am, we're about four and a half minutes in and what I realized before, just before I got here was that the notes and the preparation and the uh, the research and the cross-references that I have been putting together was not for today. So I'm going to pray right now, primarily praying for my heart, because I do, I do have at least three things I know I want to share with you, and it is from the close, or at least uh, uh, from a, a general understanding of the closing of the book of Colossians, but more off uh, or moreover, this is just a, a moment where I hope and I pray that the Spirit would speak through me and minister to my heart and minister to yours as well. So join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll just have some some conversation. Father, here we stand, or I stand, in an empty auditorium. And um, standing before your book again, we have been in the book of Colossians for five months, and it has been an amazing, amazing joy to study your word to that church, which has been a timely word to our church, and to do that together. God, this week has been... uh, difficult week to navigate, very hard circumstances that have taken most of us uh, to places of uh, great grief and lament and sadness and caused us to cry, to weep, and to really just long for the, the end of depravity, division, and death. God, you've left us here as your church and you've promised us that you are returning and you are going to come back and when you come back you will deliver to us finally and once and for all salvation and the grace that we need that will sustain us for all of eternity. But that in between time your grace the measure that we have is sufficient for us even as we endure trials and tribulations. So God, I pray that in these moments you would give me the words to say that you want to speak to your people, these uh, beloved brothers and sisters of mine I know need you. 
I know that, God, I need you. We collectively need you. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that even in this moment where here I am a week before talking about things that I anticipate will happen and wrestling with things that have just happened behind me, but knowing there's going to be this elapsed time between that, Spirit, I pray that you would do and work marvelously, marvelously like only you can to bring this together and to bring it to bear, to further unify our church and mobilize us together. I pray, Lord, that you would give me some clarity of thought as I move away from the scriptures and move away from the notes, um, but to just have time to just talk through some things as a servant leader among our local church, your body. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I guess we should at least read the final greetings in Colossians chapter 4. And from there, we can have uh, some time to talk through it and to see what God is saying to us in these moments and what it is that he would have us to do. Paul wrote, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities, beginning in verse number seven. He said, he is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision along or among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, Laodicea, Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The occasion that we find ourselves in is that Paul, just by way of reminder, has written a letter to the Colossian church. And he wrote that letter because their pastor, and you could even say the church planter, had come to, the, to Paul and he came to him concerned. Concerned that the church was being led astray by false teaching. 
and was thinking that they could find some fullness of knowledge and fulfillment in something else, namely Gnosticism. And Paul wanted to tell them that all of their fullness was complete in Christ and Christ alone. Well, Paul's in prison. He's in jail. And he's writing to them this letter, having never even seen them. I like to believe that when Epaphras came to Paul and he was in jail, he received him, having known Epaphras and met him and even led him to the Lord, most likely, and then sent him back to his hometown to plant a church. Paul saw that man as his brother and all of the people that he represented were near and dear to him just like they were to Epaphras. And so even though he had never met them, even though he had never spent any time with them, he loved them deeply and would sacrifice everything on their behalf. And so he wrote a jam-packed letter that gives us some of the best understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what the gospel has done for every person, every, um, every person who would believe in him and every person from all kinds of backgrounds. Like he gave so much to that little church in that small town, in that uh, remote valley to the degree that thousands of years later it's preserved for us and it's very useful for our instruction. Well, here he has these final greetings. Last week, we saw his final instruction. And as Sean had just walked us through, he helped us to understand, here's the thing. We ought to be capitalizing on our opportunity to prayerfully march through this life with a grateful heart that's just waiting to bust open and to declare to others the beauty of the gospel and the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that we have received in Jesus Christ and that's theirs and is open to theirs, open to them. And now he gives final greetings. And I thought that it was interesting in reading through this and being in this moment that what Paul has actually done is he's made it a point to not make it about himself. Paul does not want the Colossians, who are probably seeing Epaphras as a person who has brought them a partial truth, but they haven't actually known, or he didn't know enough, and he didn't do it the way that, uh, that others did it. And so now there's these people who are coming, and they've infiltrated the church, and they're preaching some superior, or from a place of superiority, and they're making everybody feel inferior. And so now all those people are looking at Epaphras, and they're saying, He's kind of JV or he's not the right person and he's not the right leader. Paul didn't want them to look at him that way. And so he pins this letter, but now he turns everything back around and he wants to make a point that the church and our gospel witness and who we are as a body is collective. It's not individual. 
You guys have heard that from me multiple times as I've been preaching through this. I try to take every opportunity to say all these imperatives, they're all in plural. And every time he talks about you, he's really talking about y'all. And it's not a moment for anyone to feel like they can be isolated and do the Christian life on their own. But man, this section gets so much more personal and so much more specific. And from it, I found at least three things that I will keep in terms of notes that I want you to take. If there's anything that we should take from the closing of this letter and everything that we know from the four chapters that we've walked slowly through, it's three things. Christian ministry is a team effort. That's number one. Secondly, the church is not a social club. We are family. And the third is that though beautiful and joyous, life in the Father's house is oftentimes hard and full of pain and many sorrows. And so we should walk through it, walk through this life soberly. I guess we will just take the first point. Christian ministry is a team effort. In these final greetings, Paul names out all these people. He says Tychicus, and he goes and he says Onesimus, and he goes and he says Aristarchus, and he says Mark, and he mentions Barnabas by way of he's in relationship to Mark. And then he says Jesus called Justice, and he goes on and on and on. He names Epaphras, and he says a lot about Epaphras, and he goes on and he names more and more people. He brings 10 people to bear so that they would understand that Christian ministry, so that the church would understand that disciple-making and counseling and the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer and the ministry of speaking with seasoned speech, a.k.a. we call it evangelism and mission and witness, that all those things are a team effort, not just an individual enterprise that is reserved for one or a few gifted individuals or the professionals that God has called together a people to work together. He names these individuals and he says interesting things about them, but I think it's just interesting first and foremost just to see that he names them. And he names them with so much endearment that what he's saying is, this is my team. These are my guys. Some of them you've met. Some of them you've not met. Some are from you or, you know, right there uh, among you. And others are here with me in Rome. One's even in jail with me, my fellow prisoner. His point is that I'm writing to you, yes, but the truth is, is that we're in this together, and that needs to stimulate among you to think that way about yourselves, that you are a collective, that you're a team, that ministry ought to be happening in the pews. There was a time when I was working in student life for a Bible college, 
And Student Life in a Bible College with uh, teenagers to young adults who have raging hormones means one thing, that there's oftentimes things like the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life that get in the way of people being able to have sanctifying relationships that are, are beautiful. Most often it's, it's, it's abusive or it's divisive. It can be dismissive. It can be immoral. And so there were always some disciplinary actions that need to be taken. But you know what I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt? One thing that we would always say as staff and faculty was that we would love it if there was gross sin, gross being large, something that's a big and a major thing, and it never had to make it down to King Hall. It never had to get to the staff because confrontation, restoration, and prayer, and discipleship, and engagement in anything was happening in the dorm room. Somebody turning around and say, hey, man, you can't talk like that. Hey, bro, you ought to be thinking about your relationship with her. I think that you guys are too close physically. And on and on and on, that, that a freshman would uh, speak the word of God to a senior if he needed to, to cause him to live a life that is worthy of the gospel and to remember those things. Or that, that a sophomore would look to a fellow sophomore who's grieving and suffering in some way and be able to pray for him and be able to lift him by uh, listening to him and coming alongside him. That is what the picture of the church ought to be. We started last summer. And I know it got really funny that we would go through for eight weeks and I would basically start every one of the talks that I did and say things like Vince Lombardi said, gentlemen, this is a football. Well, now that we've looked at one of the New Testament churches that was only, what, 20, 30 years advanced from Christ's death, books written in 50 or 60 A.D., Christ died at 33 A.D. I mean, we're talking about people who, and Paul, right, and, and the other apostles are still walking the earth and saying, hey, we're eyewitnesses. And so here's the thing. After we've walked through these four chapters and we've looked at the church and looked at the exhortations that have come to them, now we've been able to say, ah, this is what the church is. We find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of social distancing and where it's better to shelter at home. And we are so uncomfortable. I think that it's been a progressive discomfort. And now I'm talking about the larger church, but I know also in my conversations with you that this touches home for just us as well. The first bit of discomfort was, can't nobody tell me what I'm supposed to do? It didn't feel right that we would be closing up. Or for some of us, the fear came in right away, and it just didn't feel right that we would be closing down our public gatherings and meetings and that we would be going to these virtual phone calls and pre-recorded things, et cetera, et cetera. But as a whole, I think what I've observed after five, almost six weeks of this is that the church is uncomfortable because we've been going to church so long that we didn't know what to do when there was nowhere to go. We didn't know what to do when there was nowhere to go. Because we have been thinking about the church as this place that I go, that I attend to, and, and, and I didn't necessarily think of it as a collective. It was all about me, and did I feel like getting there? 
heard many pastors talk about in the last year. It felt like, you know, people thought that uh, one to two times a month was like great regular attendance and, and they, would, they would pride themselves in that. And the thing is, it's like, what are we talking about attendance? Who's taking role? What, what is this all about? Why is it that we've become so individualistic that we show up to a place and we get what we can get, but we don't partner together? And so we've been talking about things like partnership, probably not as much as we should have been in the last at least six months. And we've been talking about things like participation. And what I've realized is that we might announce, hey, there's all these needs that we have, and anybody jump in. We may send out messages and say, hey, I would love for you to be a part of this. Some people may even show and say, hey, I want to do something. And we've been in such disarray because it's all been centered around a place and not a people that we don't even know how to join forces and work together, but God gave us a pause. And now we get to see how important it is that it's not just resting on one individual, that it's not just resting on one pastor or four pastors or six deacons or 12 ministry leaders but that the responsibility for the ministry that happens in the context of our local church and the mission that God has called us to in our local communities is something that we are all together in on, and we've got to stack hands, and I have to take ownership of partnership. In reading the book of Colossians, God has wanted us to see that Christian ministry is a team effort and that we are all in together. He wanted us to understand and to know that as a local church, we are an assembly of those who are the called out ones, called out from the world, called out from sin, called out and separated from other idols, and called to a place to exalt Jesus Christ, to embrace one another in community, and to engage culture. And he's called us to do that together. When Paul's naming all of his friends, he's putting up an example for them to say, you are not alone. I am not alone. No matter what you think about me, no matter what you may think about your former pastor, your, your, your uh, you know, church that you went to in the past, or no matter what you may even be thinking about, if we just spent time, God willing... <laughs> On the front end before this message, the reason why Barry's not even in the the, the auditorium right now is because we just spent time making a very critical announcement and spending time to be sensitive around that. We've been processing through that and the need for that for over a couple of months and thinking about how do we help our people to not see this as a fracture or a bad thing, but to see this as a good thing to maybe find the, the bittersweet that things like this are very bitter at times, but also very sweet to see the reprioritizing and the refocusing and the reshaping. And even as I would say, the much needed reset before a second or a third wind in ministry. 
I almost wish I was Sean preaching this message, but I know that because of our partnership and our unity and our, our conversations, many of them, that I can say on his behalf that this was meant to be uh, an opportunity for you to be able to see that the church is not his, the church is not mine, the church is not uh, the Carlos's, the church is not Dan's, the church is not the four of ours, the church is yours. The church is ours. We, together, are the church. And if a rise is going to be worth any of the time and energy that we put into seeking to sustain and keep going, a church that's been moving since 2013 and gone through many transitions and moves and now replanting, if we're going to see that be fruitful so that our children and our children's children's neighbors and family and friends would have a faithful gospel witness in the midst of other local churches who are gathered here, if we are supposed to keep going with this, then you've got to understand that this belongs to us. And by us, I mean y'all pointing at myself sitting behind a screen right alongside you. Paul wrote and he named all his friends and he said that it's a team effort. The next thing he says is that it's not a social club, it is a family. What do you know about a social club? A country club an affinity group, a sports team. I I almost said Christian ministry is a team sport, and I realized, no, no, it's not. we're not playing games here, right? But here's the thing. Sports team, uh, social club, country club, all those things. We all belong to this group because we all have a mutual, let's call it an interest in something but it's very superficial and it is really kind of divided because everybody's about their own kind of agendas and what they can get from it, but not necessarily pushing forward what the next person will get far beyond me, myself. And even if there's a social club that you're thinking about right now, you're saying like, no, 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 my such and such group, we actually are really about each other. The truth of the matter is, is that you don't call your fellow bingo player your brother, your sister. You don't think about that place that you go as the household, the household of faith. And God hasn't called you into a divine institution that is now one body and a family together on mission outside of the church at all. The capital C, invisible Catholic church, which just means that it's universal and you can't see it and you can't measure it out. That church is God's divine plan for the restoration and redemption of humanity through the worship and praise of Jesus Christ and the belonging together that goes out on mission together. And he deliberately places people in pods together and calls them local churches that are in partnership together, like the church at Colossae, like the church at Ephesus, like the church 
that we call arise. I don't think it's hard to find that in this text if we're going to take a a moment to just go through Colossians chapter 4, Tychicus, he names as a beloved brother. And then he goes on and he says, Onesimus is also a faithful and beloved brother. He talks about Mark as Barnabas' cousin, but then he wants them to know you've got instructions to welcome him and presumably just like the other individuals that you would call a brother if he shows up to where you are. And he goes and he names these individuals and what's beneath the surface is that what Paul's actually getting at is he's naming these people. It turns out to be 10 people and he names three people who are his Jewish partners, and he names three people who are Gentiles, one, you know, from the Asian descent, another one right there from the Roman province. And he, what he does is he names this multi-ethnic group. He says, my crew is multicultural. It's not just me by myself, or it's not just me and my kind. It's all kinds of people. And then he goes on and he talks about the people who are even at Colossae. And so he says, we're all a family, but that as a family... We're a new kind of household. I think it's, it's very important to understand that he names men and he names women. When he names Nympha, he talks about the church that is in her house. Nympha had a gospel community. Sometimes we talk about house churches as if we think that that was the only way that it was. No, the truth is, is oftentimes they didn't have a place to gather everyone together, and so they had these churches or or these groups that met in individuals' houses. And so here we have a woman, Nympha, and I could say that Phoebe, and I could say that uh, Priscilla is named before Aquila in other places. And I can go down the list and just say, there are a lot of ladies who had churches that that met in their homes. And so I think that that's very important to wrestle with, even as we think about how do we affirm the rightful place of the ladies that arise and the leadership that they ought to give to the furtherance of the church here. It doesn't matter if we talk about what the Bible says about uh, an elder or an overseer or whatnot. There's everything else, everything else, everything else at the very minimum we ought to know for sure. Our brothers and our sisters are a part. So anyway, I, I was just trying to say, brothers and sisters, there's uh, men and women, there's this multicultural element, and then he even goes on and he talks about Onesimus. Next week, we'll be able to get into that because uh, Barry is going to actually just walk us through the entire letter to Philemon, which is only one chapter, and he's going to help us to understand it. But here's what I want you to see. Onesimus... He called a faithful and beloved brother, and he said he was one of you. Now, he was sending Onesimus back, and I'll just beat the news home. Paul may have called everyone else here faithful ministers and fellow servants, called others uh, servants alongside him using the same word that portrays to a slave. Those who would be otherwise like, you know, subservient to a master. But about Onesimus, he calls him, he says, hey, he's a faithful and a useful brother. And he's sending him back to Philemon. Beating the news home, Onesimus was actually a runaway slave 
who left and went to Ephesus and thought that he could get away. And God met him there. He ran away from Philemon, his earthly master, and met his earthly master's heavenly master, the Lord Jesus. And now he's being sent back to Philemon for reconciliation. Enough about that. Barry will tackle that next week. The point is, what you need to understand is that in the church, God's household includes not just Jew and Gentile, not just this language and that language, not just men and women, not just rich and poor, but even from a class standpoint, the highest and what we would have otherwise, what they would have otherwise considered the lowest, considers each one of those individuals a brother or a sister. The biblical household of faith is where we get this idea or we get this idea from understanding just what the culture at that time saw as a household. And it wasn't just the nuclear family. It was also the extended family. And it included the house servant, just like it included the, the, the adopted child, just like it included children of birth, and just like it included husband and wife. It, was, it, it wasn't even safe to try to do life alone. It was, it was oikos, this, this household, this family that was strengthened by nuclear families that posseed together to become one in the church. This is true of us, whether we like it or not. And so God wants us to embrace this and to operate from this. That means that our relationships, even more than just being in partnership with one another, it means that we're inextricably tied together and that you and I are invaluable to one another. That God's house includes everybody. And if I'm going to be a part of God's family, I've got to see other people on the same footing as me, yes, but more so like with the same value and the same beauty and dignity, et cetera, et cetera. And truthfully, the best way for us to understand that, God thought, was to compare them to family because more often than not, every human being, would not mistake the value and the rightful place of where their bloodline ought to be. And so God turns it up. He flips it over and says, even more than that, your spiritual family. Paul did not want the Colossians to receive this letter. Paul did not want Philemon to receive Onesimus, as we'll hear, and to think of him as a less than. To think of him as just a, a person who also is a part of this group, but he's not really uh, important. No, Paul wanted him to see that he's one of you. He's one of you in a, in a, in a national sense, and he's one of you in the sense that he is a faithful brother. Skyler always asks me this question. And I, I, I don't think I've really been able to get into like a deep deep conversation with him, and now they're in Houston. But he would always ask me, every time we get into conversation like this, he'd always ask me, what do you mean when you say the church is a family? 
And Schuyler knows very well the books that I'm reading, the discipleship philosophy that I'm coming from, the conversations that this cycles around. But I think that what he's trying to get at is, Steve, do you really, really, really believe that? And are you really, really ready to call our people to embrace that? And I think for the very first time, this isolated time that we've been in where we've been all over the place has really helped me to see that that is who we are or we are nothing. What I mean is that we may as well quit while we're ahead and just, just, just stop now if we're not ready to embrace community to the depth of family interdependent relationships like brothers and sisters, the siblings that we are. The church is not just like a family. The church is family. And your spiritual family is more important than your physical family. So if you cannot prioritize the pursuit of an eternal relationship that is submitted to God in Jesus Christ... And connected to the point that it's even called a body, where there's hands and there's feet and there's legs. All of us, body parts together. If you cannot see yourself as a part of that, there's, there's nothing else for you. It, it would be better for you to be a part of a golf tournament or a, a, a softball team. To go there and to put your lot in to try to earn your stripes and to get better at what you want to do and, and to get, kind of give your token participation and then walk away and, 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 and to not have to even think about it. But if you're going to be a meaningful part of the church, that big C church that's expressed through the little C church, then you've got to be ready to come in and to give all because I've been telling you that I tell my kids, remember who's you, who you are and whose you are, but that's, that's, that's for you and I to think about in our fellowship, in our koinonia, in our partnership together, we're supposed to think of each other as members of one another because we are family members. And I think that this time that we're in and the moments that we're in and even the opportunity that we have to be able to hear from uh, Sean and Daisy and to be able to hear their, their, their love, their great love for the church and say, hey, so we're, just because we're not going to be in leadership does not mean that we're not going to be here in love relationship. And so we're still here and we're still apart. That, that, that right there, friends, that's the sacrifice. That's what it means to be family. I'm not here at will. I'm not here because I'm paid. I'm not here because I'm leading. I'm not here because I'm prominent. I'm not here because I have a big place. I'm here because the people of God are here. The grace of God is here, and I need you and you need me. God's called us together to be that. The last point is that though beautiful and joyous life in the Father's house is oftentimes hard and it can be full of sorrow. Paul's writing from prison. At the beginning of the Colossians, he said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. And he didn't even call himself a prisoner of the Lord. But here as it ends, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. 
He's saying, I want you to remember that I'm calling you to all these things, that I'm saying these things to you, and I don't even, I've already lost it all. I have nothing to lose. I got nothing to gain. I am in prison. He's chained to a guard all day. And he's in a box. And he's, and, he's, and he's at the threat of loss of life, all for the sake of the gospel. Remember my chains. Don't come into this thinking that the only thing you're going to find is always the ease that you want, always the comforts that you're looking for, the messages are going to uh, tickle your ears, the, the, the time and fellowship is always going to go in exactly the direction that you want it to, the ladies or the guys that you get to hang out with and the kids that you're, the friends that your kids get to make, it's always going to be about you, 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 and it's always going to be good, good, good. No, the reality is, is that we may be a team and we may be a family, the reality is, is that we're all prisoners. And I want to say that lightly because we're not in prison like Paul was. Some of us may one day land there. I know people personally, uh, even right now, who are in jail for their faith. But the reality is, is that prisoners of the Lord, meaning we are bond servants. We're in bondage and we are giving up the comforts of life and all the things that we would socially go after to make our lives better for the purpose of sharing in the afflictions and the sufferings of Christ. I wouldn't want you to forget what happened in Colossians chapter 2 when Paul talked about all the ways in which he suffers on behalf of the church. He said, I toil, I struggle with all of Christ's energy. And I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, even though I haven't seen you face to face. When he talks about Epaphras here at the end, he said, Epaphras, who is one of you, is a servant, slave of Christ Jesus. And he greets you, and he too always struggles on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand assured. That word we talked about before is agonized. It's where we get our, or it's where we get our word agonized from. There's a sobriety that we ought to have in being a part of the church, the household of faith, and in community with each other. Not just as Paul in prison, but there's also this reality that Epaphras has come to him while he's in jail because of the occasion that the false teachers are coming against him. They're saying that he's not real and that the church is not real, that their faith is not real. And so he's saying, Paul, I don't know what to do. There's opposition in the church. If you're going to be a part of the family and be putting up work as a team, what you're going to realize real quickly is that it's the resistance that you feel that builds the muscle. You're in opposition to darkness. Darkness. We are seeking to push back darkness. We preach light. We live in the light. We worship the light. And so darkness is afraid of that and cowardly tries to fight against it. And so here's the deal. That's not an easy thing, friends. Spiritual warfare is not always about what's hiding in the closet. It's about what's trying to come against you and your faith to get you off the path so that your neighbors would never know, so that your friends and family members and children would not know. It's also hard because it's hard to do good relationships. 
Paul said, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, you've heard about him and you know what to do. If he comes, I want you to accept him. In Acts chapter 15, the last time we heard about Mark, was called John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. Paul and Barnabas have been killing it for the Lord. They have been together in everything. And what did they do? They parted ways because Paul did not think that Mark should go with them. Because if I could just use my own French, he felt like he was soft. They had gone up to South Galatia to do evangelism and to preach, and they met some opposition there. And Mark went away. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be a part of it, so he had left. And now here they are going on another missionary journey, and Barnabas is like, I'm bringing my cuz. And Paul said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I will. And he said, okay, if you're going to do that, then I'm going to recruit Savannah's we're going this way, y'all can go that way. And he broke fellowship with one of his best friends over that. Separated with him in ministry over that. But now we see that he was not done with Mark, and he actually says, if he comes to you, I want you to accept him. There's been reconciliation that happened off script and in a different place that they came back together and they're still in partnership. And he would even say at another time to Timothy, hey, I want you to bring Mark with you because he's useful to me. There's tension in the relationship, but because the church is not at will, they worked through it. And as long as they're walking together in the body, even though there's some disagreement, they just have to fight and fight and fight and tussle it out like iron sharpening iron. You know, when iron sharpens iron, sparks and everything goes everywhere. But the reality is that they're both better for it. So Paul saw Mark as somebody to be redeemed and restored back to not just his fellowship. His fellowship with God was already good. But back to him, is there anybody who you would say, and they left. Maybe you say, we've been trying to do this, and they don't even want to be a part. Maybe you say, in my old church, this took place, or in former years, this happened in another place that I used to live. And you think about a person as being, uh, you have irreconcilable differences, not according to the scriptures, if they are walking with Jesus and in the family of God. You can disagree and be divided for a time, but man, we've got to fight hard to preserve the unity of the body. So Paul brings up Mark here, and I think it's very instructive for us to know that, man, life in the father's house is not always going to be about, like, siblings are best friends. Your brothers and sisters just, they think exactly like you. They do with the same things that you do, and they're really excited about everything that you do. It's also full of sorrow. It's not just hard because we have sanctifying relationships that stretch us. I think the relationships that go across culturally stretch us. The relationships that go across class, they stretch us. The relationships that go across uh, gender at times, they stretch us. And hard relationships like Paul's and Mark's, they stretch us. But some relationships, they can bring sorrow. 
And I'm not going to preach this at you because at the end of the day in the book of Colossians, it's not really the, the main thing. But I do want you to know about it. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. He's been saying people are faithful ministers, faithful brothers. Beloved is what he just called Luke. And he mentioned Demas in passing. If I can use my sanctified imagination, it's because he already knew that Demas was kind of sliding back some. And when you get to the book of 2 Timothy, here's what you find. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, who's been on a lot of these journeys with him, including there in, when he's in prison, you know, Timothy is helping him uh, to orate the letter. When you get to 2 Timothy, you come to chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, and it says this. Again, Paul speaking to Timothy, his son in the ministry, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He didn't just say that he left. He said he left because he loved the things of the world. There's some kind of care, something that was uh, pressing in on Demas's uh, desires and his lust that made him just go, I'm not going with you anymore in ministry. I'm going to go back into my old ways. I'm not concerned about what you told me in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 to set my mind on things above and to look and to seek and to seek and to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and to set my mind there, not on things of the earth. I'm not concerned about that. I'm actually going to go and go back to the world. First John chapter 2 verse 15 says, love not the world, neither the things in the world. Because partnership or friendship or kinship or really strong liking of the world is actually enmity with God. Paul had a brother or a person that he saw as a brother. A man who had walked with him and who was named a couple times. Even when you get to Philemon, he's still naming him there. He says his name in passing again there. But Demas had one point just decided, that's too much for me. I won't have anything to do with that. So I'm out. And he walked away to serve the world. That's not something to be celebrated. That brings about great sorrow in the heart of a person who understands the free grace of God in Jesus Christ and who has been changed by the gospel. And so here we find ourselves closing out the book of Colossians. And we see that even in the final greeting, Paul is still discipling us where we might have thought that we were the MVPs or the person who the star players and we're really good at this, he's still pulling us into the locker room and saying, brothers and sisters, this is a church. My hope and my prayer is that as this has come together, that it would be relevant to us and that it would even give us the fuel that we need to now move into what our new normal will be when we're gathered again.
to move into uh, the place where we are, 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 are now not having uh, Sean pastoring and leading the church, but still loving him and Daisy and their children and them still loving and serving in and among our body. I hope that this gives us what we need for that. And I really hope that where differences come about or disagreements come about, that we will be willing to actually duke it out as a team, not as opponents, and as family, not as foes. And more than anything, I really hope this is the last time we have to talk about Demas. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you that you have helped me in these moments that I've been able to find clarity even in what I thought would have been something I just pushed aside. I felt the spirit just get behind the brief three points. It wasn't the most faithful exposition of those 12 verses and those 10 people from those three places. But God, you comprehensively have taught all of us in these moments what it means that we are called together as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would use this message in ways that only you know how to purify our church, to sanctify us collectively, to help us to learn better and better how to serve one another compassionate hearts and humility and kindness, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us if we have any grievance against each other, and to be humble in our dealings with one another, and to remember that above all of that, we put on love and it will glue it all. Thank you. Thank you. 